0: This is a download from BFM 89.9, the business station. Buy the book on BFM 89.9. Hello, you're listening to Buy the Book with Sharmila Ganesan, and with me, as always, my fellow traveler through books, Li Lin. Hello. So this week is our book club episode. So as always, we have a, um, a third person joining us to discuss a book together. And we have with us the editor of Makaranga, Wong Siu Lin. Thank you for being with us today. You're welcome. Very, very happy to be here. And let's start with the book that you suggested, right? So it is My Family and Other Animals by Gerald Durrell. Um, and Siu Lin, while there's some obvious through lines as to why you might have picked this book. I'm very curious to hear um, what made you choose it for us to discuss today.
1: Well, it's one of my favourite books, really. Um, And it's written by a naturalist and it's it's autobiographical and yet it's not strictly autobiographical, although it's got elements of that. Uh, It's also a natural history book uh, and it really... um, you know, it, it, it's, it's a fantastic writing. I think we were talking about this before the show, right? Like how, what a wonderful writer he really is. And it just brings you joy. It sparks joy.
0: Joy is absolutely right. Um, I couldn't think of a better book to spend some time with during this point in time.
2: I feel as if uh, we've had a couple of, well, uh, reads, whether because of interviews or because of book clubs um, in recent months where they fitted the lockdown theme for all the wrong reasons, right? Where it's because like it, it captured how trapped we feel or it somehow, you know, measured up to the darkness of the time. And this is really the opposite of that. I I felt that the book was um, and I told this to Sharmila of Air, I felt like it was a holiday for my mind. You know, when I was reading it, I was just immersed in the the olive groves and the waters of Corfu and also the sheer eccentricity of the Darrell family. And I just I I tremendously enjoyed the
0: book, Lin Thank you so much for recommending it. So the story of the book, of course, is about Darrell's childhood with his family right after they've moved to Corfu. And Gerald is, um, you know, he grew up to be a famed naturalist, but he was basically mad about animals from very young, uh, particularly, uh, I think, later what came to be known as the ugly animals, the ones that few people found cute or interesting. And that, in, I think that is a sort of very fun idiosyncrasy to read about because then it comes into play in his interactions with his family so it's a few things at once it's definitely a book about nature but it's also a book about family and about community and travel so there are many things happening at once and I think that's partly why it has this it has this air of a book that isn't really a type of book that isn't really written anymore a very particularly English sensibility of seeing the
1: world that's right. He, so he goes back to the time that he was in uh, Corfu, which is in uh, Greece, and that was in 1935. So the family spent four years there, and he was aged 10. Uh, so he was there from the age of 10 to uh, the age of 14. And we know what happened very soon after 1930, uh, 1939, which is World War II. You know? So it's kind of like that idyllic period. Uh, and and also, you know you couldn't have chosen a a, a sort of better place to escape from the dreary winters of, of, of Britain which he describes in great detail and make sure he makes it as glum as possible talk about being trapped, talk about being gray uh, and then you go out he goes out to this amazing openness of this island which uh, for him is, is is really you know to you use the word um, like a holiday. It really is like a holiday aisle. Uh, and at the end of every single episode, he kind of ends with a kind of like, you know, the, the day comes to an end and there's a, a little bit of sadness in there. But then the next day it's it's like waking up again and then you know, embracing the, the the next day again, which is which is really wonderful. I love that you mentioned that partly because I felt that the whole book had that ebb
2: and flow. Um, because he mentions right at the start that Corfu is filled with its own timing. Um, Things happen on Corfu that don't seem to be able to happen anywhere else. And uh, the book is populated with those kinds of anecdotes, either through personal experience or through people who have lived on the island longer saying, oh, did you hear about the time the circus came in? Did you hear about the time there was an opera? You know, all these things. But also the days coming to an end, I think, is exactly right. You know, you have this feeling of a boy going out on adventures on a daily basis, waiting for the sun to rise so that he can go out and catch butterflies and toads and then waiting for the sun to set so that he can watch geckos and you know scorpions exactly (laughs) Um, but also of the seasons so I think the whole book has this ebb and flow and push and pull not just of um, days slipping into nights uh, but also of seasons because he writes about what it's like in
0: high summer he writes about what it's like in spring in winter I think what's interesting is that while you have that sense of time passing with the seasons and with weather and with events happening, on the other hand, there's a real comfort in this family that you've been introduced to that just seems to stay the same throughout the course of the book, but in the best of ways. They start feeling like your family, you know. There's the outdoorsy, stern, but loving brother. There's the dramatic brother who, um, you know, is also a writer <laughs> and a poet and, 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 you know, is constantly going on about art. The mother who's just, who sounds like the loveliest person who puts up with all of the family idiosyncrasies. Margot, the sister, um who's... Again, one of those, in some ways, a fairly typical English girl at that time, but in other ways also sort of she puts up with a lot from her younger brother in a way that I think many other girls might not. Um, and I think there's a real joy in having the anchor of this family uh, amidst all of the newness in Corfu, um, learning about new people, um, just Travelling around the island with Jerry, um, I don't know, the push and pull of those two things, the new things with the familiarity of the family, because you're seeing it through his eyes. I really love that.
1: I think the magic here really is, I mean, it's in the title, it's My Family and Other Animals. And so the characterization, as, as as you mentioned, is absolutely stunning. Um, and, 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 and what uh, Lynn mentioned as well, you know, the island itself is a character that is, is also absolutely amazing. Uh, it's, it's like a long holiday that you don't want to end. It's idyllic. There's no tensions, sun-kissed. It's this quintessential Mediterranean island. All that really comes through. And then, of course, you have the animals, you know. And um, he, he did mention, uh, I think, uh, at the beginning that the world of Greece is a looking-glass world. Uh, he quotes from uh, Alice Through the Looking Glass. So for him, it really is yes. The, the the family sort of anchors him, but as we learn about all these you know quirks that the family has, we also learn about uh, the animals that live there, and they really are. The, the use of language is is really amazing. He creates a world where humans sort of merge into animals that sort of merge into the island, merge into the weather and then merge back into animals. And it's all really one. And that that really is an amazing worldview of a naturalist. Uh, and for them, it isn't that humans are separate from nature. Humans are very much part of nature. Humans are very much part of animals. And um, what he does is, is an amazing use of language where where you know where, how how he does this right so um, humans really are like on equal footing with animals or animals are on equal footing with anim- uh, with humans uh, so for example a female lacewing wing fly um, flew off in the midst of green gauze wings uh his sister margot trails yards of muslin and scent so you can see you know the metaphor is like so similar and then he moves from earwigs the next paragraph is he's talking about plump peasant girls. And, and, you know, it's just it's just absolutely seamless.
2: In that same vein, sometimes I had to remind myself that Roger is not a person. Um, because, yeah, same. so, um, you know, the person oh, I, I, there I did it. Um, so the his companion. I think, um, through most of the adventures, most consistently, the one who's always with him as he goes around collecting more for his menagerie at home is his dog, Roger. And uh, the way he talks about Roger, I think for people who love animals, uh, for people who have had dogs, that kind of deep empathy and love that they show one another, um, and the fact that he gives Roger a lot of agency, right? He never says, um, I told Roger to do this and he did. It's more like, um, I showed Roger a bird. Roger... responded in his usual manner, blah, 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 etc. And so I think um, that kind of blending, um, aside from the beautiful metaphors that exist, also exists simply in the companionship of Roger and later on in, um, I believe they're Whittle and is it Whittle and, Whittle puke? and puke, yes. <laughs> yes, um, later on in Whittle and Puke and in Dodo, but really primarily in the, the character and the companionship of Roger. I also wanted to say that while listening to you both talk about the characters of the family as well as the animals. What I find interesting is that Gerald himself does not necessarily... He doesn't write about his own character very much. He never says, um, I have always been known as the stoic one of the family, which wouldn't be true anyway, but he he never (laughs) writes that necessarily. Um, Instead, he just... Uh, he he presents himself very much as an observer. And I think as someone who is more spoken about, they they talk about him as there's that kid again. His personality infuses the book, but it's not explicitly kind of, he doesn't push himself into the narrative as such. And I
0: also really like that. It almost felt like we were Jerry. Um, And that's why we didn't need to know who he was. We sort of put ourselves in his place. And that, that, it doesn't always work. It's not an easy thing to write that, but he does that so successfully that it feels seamless.
1: I really felt the natural history part of his world really come through in the way that he he, he does that. So it's it's in his descriptions, it's in his writing, and how it's very sen- sensory. Is that the word for it? So you don't you don't only like you know you you can picture it because of the descriptions. So it's very very highly visual very very descriptive so you can picture stuff that ha- that's happening in front of him but you can also almost see color he uses a lot of color he describes sound he describes smell taste so what you you get what he what you get is his world as exactly what you guys were saying. It's very very immersive, and that is the world to him. You know, uh, you, you talked about uh, and ugly animals at one stage, right? So it's not always the big animals, but the little ones. But it's so immersive, and the worlds are absolutely enormous. Little worlds in 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 the in between stones are actually. Enormous, entire, full, complete worlds in themselves, and that's how he uses language so beautifully. I think that's that's really how a real naturalist sees sees the world, and we see it through his descriptions. We don't need anyone saying. So he's he's always the one that that boy, you know, he's always getting into trouble, you know. Where the family is like, what's he up to again, you know? Oh, that you know, he's you know he should be sent off. He needs tutors and all that sort of thing, you know. But but it's it's the the way he looks at the world and how he presents it. I think that is is uh, a real window.
0: It is our monthly book club episode and today we are discussing Gerald Durrell's My Family and Other Animals. Uh, It's a book that was written in 1956 but um, as you can hear from our enthusiasm still definitely worth reading. Let us know do you like reading uh, these sorts of books set in uh, nature about animals? Send us some suggestions. You can WhatsApp us 018-789-8899 tweet us at BFM Radio or write to us at buythebook at bfm.my. Coming up we'll continue our discussion of the book this is by the book bfm 89.9
2: brainy fancy material
0: bfm 89.9 welcome back you're listening to buy the book with sharmila and lynn and today for our monthly book club episode we are joined by makaranga's editor wong su lin and together we're discussing gerald Durrell's my family and other animals so before the break, we talked a lot about the um, the language and how it sort of really brings to life the various facets of the book, right? I said this earlier, and I wanted to get back to that a little bit. I constantly felt a sense of longing for more books like this because it strikes me that we don't get people writing this way anymore. And um, I was wondering whether that was just something that I felt or that came through to you guys as well.
2: I think it's a very particular product Right, of a certain time, because, um, ultimately, There was a period, uh, particularly, I think, when um, steamships started carrying people across the sea quicker, when people could fly, when people... Basically, when transportation became more of a thing and yet not one that was always accessible to every single person. And so you had um, the sort of middle-class, upper-class British writers talking about travelling in a very particular way. And so I think um, the the travelogue book of that type, at least, is definitely the product of a certain generation, partly because now... um, travel so accessible. So it's really changed. Um, I do think, though, that what sets Darrell's book apart from the others is the openness with which he throws himself into Corfu um, and the lack of, um, I say Britishness, because that, like I said, it's really a product of a certain generation from a certain country. And I don't think necessarily that he approached it the way other writers have done, you know, with the whole, um, we're coming here to bring forth civilization, take our <laughs> books, you know, enjoy our way of life. Instead, it's more, uh, I will drink your wine. I will learn to speak Greek. My mom will not, but I will, <laughs> and, you know, um, and, and I will learn your songs and I will sit with you in the fields. And so I think maybe what sets the book apart in that sense and the reason why there's that longing is because in that regard, I feel it is quite unique.
1: I think they are very uh, cosmopolitan. I think that's the thing that that comes through at the time that maybe being cosmopolitan wasn't the thing to be uh, when you, when you went to a different country and lived there. There's a certain kind of like uh, distance I think that does come through in the shape of the other characters, whereas uh, Jerry is a little bit different from everyone else because you know, as you said, Lynn, he embraces. Everyone, uh, you know, he sings love songs with uh, Agathi. I'm not sure if that's <laughs> how you pronounce it, right? And, and the way he describes her, right, uh, I just love it. This is, this is, again, his writing. So he says, she is like a great black toad. But of course, for him, a, a great black toad is, is a thing of, you know, I, it's, it's an amazing thing of yes. beauty, right? Uh, but she has a drooping mouth with with its hedge of broken and discolored teeth, you know. But he doesn't, you know. It's it's not to put her down or anything. That's just how he looks at. At her, And that's how he looks at the world. That's how he looks at animals. Uh, you know, uh, like a, a huntsman spider has the cunning ferocity of a tiger. You know? and, and so what, what he does is, is he crosses metaphors again, back again to his writing. I think it, it really is a thing of beauty. And I think it really is uh, what maybe we don't get so much of anymore. This, this kind of very, very dense, descriptive writing. It does remind me of Clive James, uh, the Australian author. And he, you know, he's also written several autobiographies as well. And well, like he calls, I think the one that I, I particularly like is called "Unreliable Memoirs." So they're kind of like unreliable. You know, how much of it is imagination? How much is it that's seen through his eyes? How much does he, is it through memory? You know. So yeah, yeah. I think that's that's something that, a very particular kind of writing from a, a very particular kind of generation.
2: We talked about the characterization of the family earlier, and while uh, the book has a lot of focus. On the animals and their personalities and how they infuse their personalities into the various homes that the family moves into um, in Corfu, I think that the family's characterization is set pretty much from the moment that they arrive, which is to say what they brought with them and the manner in which they've arrived. You know, you have Larry with his 10 cases of books hailing a <laughs> cab and, you know, insisting that everyone else just get another one. Um, you, you have all these different things, but I think. Gerald talks about arriving with what was it? Butterflies and jam jars and yes. the like. And and I think that that, that kind of um, infusion of magic, uh, a little bit of um, a, a little bit of magic into the mundaneness of moving countries, right? If you imagine how it would have been for a large family moving onto an island, trying to get around, um, I think you know anybody who's even travelled with their family would know that, that it probably wasn't that magical a arrival. Um, and yet. The way that's done um, has with it the ring of truth because it tells you exactly who this family is that's moved onto this island. Um, I was curious whether each of you had a favorite section because the book is divided very neatly into three sections, and those are the three homes that the Durrell family live in um, on Corfu. And, and did
0: you have a favorite, or did you feel that all three were in conversation with one another anyway? For me, it was a whole, as in a whole, a complete thing. And I don't know if I can pick out a section that I particularly... um but I must say that for me, I loved I loved his discovery and adventures with the animals. It made me want to go look up what an oil beetle was and what a particular kind of gull looks like. and And I kept going on Google and wanting to see what is. And funnily enough, he describes them as you said, Su Lin, as sounding so gorgeous. And then when you look them up, you're like, Oh, wait, hang on, this is interesting. This is not what I had in mind. But it's it's a, it's a, such a particular way of looking at the world. And for me, that was what I enjoyed. Did you guys have favorite sections?
1: I didn't. I like you, exactly like you. I just felt that the, the whole book kind of each chapter was kind of complete on it uh, unto its own. So you could read one chapter and then, like, okay, put it away, and you know the next chapter is going to be the beginning of yet another adventure. And what is he going to discover then, you know?
2: Yeah, it's the same. I only ask because the book is set so clearly into 3 and and because I feel that um he took so much pains to describe the the house, each house, right? Each villa whether it was the pink, whether it was the white, whether it was the green, you know, there is this huge emphasis on we came in, this is the layout, um this is the this is where my brother almost burned to death. You know, there, there are all these stories built in um that each section feels um like you say soon like a building of an adventure, like a new day. But also in many ways uh, like a distinct thing because not only does the house have its personality but the grounds and the gardens that you know he's going to go off and and know very intimately Um, I liked the structure partly because it felt like a constant renewal Um, so it felt like you were constantly rediscovering or setting out to discover a new place through the eyes of somebody who was very intent on getting
0: to know every scorpion in the wall (laughs) So I wanted to just close off by talking about one aspect that we haven't touched on, and and only because I want this to come through if you haven't read the book, that it's incredibly funny. I found myself cackling out loud at so many parts and... Um, it's, it's a combination of a few things, right? It's, it's a sort of very familiar humor. If you have a big family or if you have relatives or even neighbors who all have their idiosyncrasies and then you put them all together in the space, the kinds of things that happen. So they sound like they would actually happen in someone's real life. So you recognize the humor in the situation, but he writes them so, cleverly, uh, that you can see the build up to something, a a dinner party just going hopelessly awry or yes, or a a sibling almost catching on fire and the aftermath of that. But I found myself laughing so hard. And that's particularly why I loved reading this at this time.
1: I think the way he throws words again I keep coming back to the writing because I think I'm absolutely enamored of the writing and you know the the unexpected uh, you, you don't throw words together it's just like this is not a straight uh, autobiography it's not a natural history book it's not a memoir it's a combination he basically takes any sort of boundary uh, and then throws them out the window you know and so w- when we learn to write we were always like don't mix your metaphors don't mix your metaphors right he doesn't care he's just like throwing any old word in there you know so so for example uh, for a crab right he uses all these different words in in a very short space of time to describe a crab he uses brown beads rose thorn it's flattened it's neat it's crooked it's enormous it's bulbous all these different things sort of thrown together you know microscopes are gleaming like magpies who would think that microscopes gleam like magpies would do we even know that magpies actually gleam you know and and so i, I it's the language i think uh, i'm i'm really absolutely enamored of the language you know, when he describes the toads, and I don't like toads. I,
2: I, I, know, you know, I, I like nature. I understand all that in theory. It doesn't mean I have to like every single bug and toad that comes my way. And, um, I, I'm not a fan of toads. But when he writes about those horrible old toads that he finds that he just loves so much, I think that it, it's all in there, right? Everything that we're talking about, this descriptive nature, the, the charm, the humor. Um, I wanted to return actually, Sulin, to a word that you mentioned, which is dense. Um, and I think that when it comes to the writing style, that's an important thing to know because it contributes to the humour as well. The descriptiveness is so dense. The humour as well, when it comes, it comes thick and fast. And so for that reason, it's a very um, involving and immersive read and I think it's part of what makes the the discovery of things so beautiful, but it's also part of what makes the humour so funny because he doesn't really let up. You know, there's a dinner party sequence where <laughs> things just kind of cascade on from scorpions to snakes to And you know it's to... going to
0: happen, but it's hilarious nonetheless. Well, yes. I mean, it's like
2: it's like Chekhov's scorpion in a matchbox. You know, you don't just put one in there <laughs> and expect people to not pull it out. Um, and, and that's what he does. The, the book is delightful. I'm so happy
0: we read it. So it's new to linen, I, but um, it is actually the first of a trilogy, even though this one stands very well on its own. Sulin, I was wondering whether the rest of the trilogy holds up.
1: Well, I have to admit, I've, I, after all these years, I've actually not even, I've not read the third one. The second one I felt was a little bit disappointed, but maybe it's time for me to revisit it. Uh, there's nothing like the you know first love, first sight, first impressions. Uh, I think the second one is wonderful as well but it, it perhaps loses a little bit of the magic, maybe because the first one is so, so beautifully crafted and absolutely wonderful. L- like you, Shamila, it's like, I don't even want to see, I've never seen a picture of Corfu. I know Corfu only through his words, you know. So there you go.
0: Thank you so much for suggesting this book to us. Really, if you haven't read it, I think it's such a perfect pandemic read. Thank you, Sulin.
1: You're most welcome. Thanks for having me.
0: We've been talking about Gerald Durrell's My Family and Other Animals. Let us know, have you read it? Do you enjoy books about nature and about animals? You can WhatsApp us, 018-789-8899, tweet us at BFM Radio, or write to us at buythebook at (laughs) bfm.my. as to footnotes. And just to jump off of our discussion about My Family and Other Animals by Gerald Durrell, we thought we'd talk about reading books from a different time and how certain things might not translate so well and what sort of shift in mindset you might need to make to be able to read them.
2: So, this is something that we've actually talked about in the past, right? Uh, Whenever, so for example, uh, to take it all the way back to something like Shakespeare, um, you know, I think that for modern readers, there are a lot of barriers to reading things, um, whether it's because of language. Earlier, we spoke about the denseness of Durrell's style, and that's actually, again, quite specific. You know, nowadays, um, this sort of writing is associated only with truly literary authors. But back in the day, That's how people wrote, you know. And so I think whether it's language being a barrier or sometimes um, ways of life, cultural practices, um, you know, that's quite another thing. Because it is a book that is set, like we've said, um, in the 1930s. It was written in the 1950s. And with it comes a lot of 1950s attitudes, uh, whether that's casual references to um, to race that I think nowadays people probably wouldn't make, um, or whether it's even in the way that he explores nature, right, that um, nowadays again, I'm not sure we would encourage in the same way.
0: Yes, and, and I think that you kind of need to know the context of when the book was written when you go in, because there are certain phrases or ways of describing uh, things that completely wouldn't be politically oh, sure. correct or even acceptable today. Um, and again, to remember that this was written in the 30s when using those kinds of descriptor, descriptors um, were not just acceptable, but perfectly commonplace. Uh, so it's it's part of it is like not allowing it to pull you out of the book, not allowing it not allowing you to form a moral judgment of the person and sort of deciding, well, I don't know if I like the story because that wouldn't be fair. There's so much to love about a book like this that I feel like having that context is important. Um, And the other thing, of course, is um, you talked about how he interacts with nature. That actually was the thing for me that required a little bit more of a this was a different time. This isn't how we think about this now because certain things that uh, young Jerry does in his um, in this sort of love letter to nature, things like taking young animals away from their mothers or even things like touching animals in nature, which is really something we talk about not doing anymore. Um, those took a little bit of adjustment for me.
2: So I was thinking about how children nowadays would learn about nature, right? Um, and a lot of it now, as you say, would focus on don't, don't touch, you know. Uh, look, but don't touch. Observe, but don't interfere. Right, and so there is all that. But of course, the knowledge that we have about these animals came from people who interfered. It came from people who did take a net and fish things out of ponds, and you know, go home. Uh, went home, prepared them, looked at them under uh, microscopes. And he does this consistently, right? Because there are two magpies, for example, that are part of the family's life, and he took them from their nest. Yes, um, you know that. He also. He, took, he also took an owl from its nest. Yes, he did. Yeah. Um, but in the case of the magpies, he literally left two. He took two mm-hmm. and left two because he was like, that's fair for the mom. And you know, <laughs> I think um, with, with things like that, again, as I was reading it, like you said, there is the threat. Um, and it's it's actually a very uh, loose threat, not an intense one, because the book is so, so fun that it would take a lot to drag you out of it. But there was a moment where I thought to myself, oh, oh cherry, I don't know, put those birds back. But On the flip side, what I kept thinking about was how, so he only has one real source of knowledge on the island. He has a series of um, ineffectual tutors, basically. But the person that he keeps going back to who participates in this nature loving with him is Theodore, the person who's sort of a scientist friend and and who has the microscopes and so on. And I kept thinking about how nowadays, if a kid went out to a park or went to a forest and, and looked through things, brought something or took a photo of something, they could come back and just Google search. They'd be able Mm. to find everything they needed to know about about the beetle, about the owl, about whatever it is. Um, But a child in the 30s needed to rely on a friend's once-weekly ride out to his home in order to get information. And there would have been no other way for a budding naturalist to see how an insect laid its eggs or to to witness the, the circle of life for many of these animals.
0: But again product of its time and you really have to remember that. So the other place in which this sort of Niggled at me a little bit, right? Like, like pulled at the part of me that's, that's from today, um, was his interactions with the locals, which on the one hand is delightful. Everyone is so interesting to read about. But on the other hand, I'm also thinking here's this English family that clearly has means that has moved to this island where most people are peasants. They actually refer to them as peasants. What's the power dynamic? How much mm. of this is them truly being delighted to do what you want them to do? How much is this is them thinking, well, these people are above me and kind of have to. Again, it is being told from the point of view of a child. So, you know, a lot of these are peripheral, but it is being written by an adult man. So there's that push and pull that occasionally felt a little uncomfortable for me, but I'm very hesitant to to, to sort of dive into that too much only because of what a great time I had reading the book. So again, I think There is a case to be made sometimes of having a healthy amount of distance from this allowing you to affect how you read.
2: I agree. Also because my hesitation comes from the fact that very often we see modern critics and scholars imposing modern views in in retrospect and saying that how we think now was how they thought then. They just didn't say it. And I I do, I, I hesitate over that as well because he writes about the people that he interacts with and that he spends time with, with clear and open affection Um, and I think that the amount of time he spends is also no small thing he really does sit with people for for hours the conversations he talks about having um, you know and so because of that I feel that there is this measure of affection and openness in the relationships that were built where to um, retroactively impose power structures upon that that we don't really know about would also unnecessarily take away um, from the pleasure of reading about him. His, their interactions with, say, um, Spiros,
0: and, and it would be a pity. Let us know, um, we've been talking about My Family and Other Animals by Gerald Durrell. How do you read books from another time? Do you take off your modern cap when you do? You can WhatsApp us, 018-789-8899, tweet us at BFM Radio. write to us at buythebook at bfm.my.